When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the No Film School podcast. This is Gigi Hawkins, and I have two surprises for you today. The first is we're here with writer-director Megan Ross. Hi, thanks for having me. Welcome. Megan's going to talk to us about a festival that her episodic proof of concept just screened at, and then we will be following this with an interview from the documentary feature film that won at the festival. And the festival that we're talking about is the Bettenville Film Festival. Am I saying that right, Megan? I think it's Bentonville. Bentonville. The Bentonville Film Festival. Capital Walmart flagship headquarters. It's where Walmart's located. It's in Arkansas, and it is a festival that was created by Gina Davis and her institute that focuses on gender equality. And and so before we dig into the details of the festival and what makes them unique, Megan, tell us about the project that you had screening at the festival. Yeah, so Here to Make Friends is actually started as a half hour pilot that I developed and wrote in the Sundance Episodic Lab in 2021 to 2022. So once I, you know, went through rewrites, we also did this big pitch parlor event back in May, 2022. But as soon as I had sort of locked for the time being the script, the half hour script, I, I knew I wanted to shoot a proof of concept for it to help with my pitching it as a series So I was lucky to get a couple grants from Sundance Institute, including the woman at Sundance Adobe Fellowship. So I had a little bit of funding to help me kick off things. And I shot it last June. Actually, our one year is coming up on Monday, or like one year from production. Happy one year. Anniversary. (laughs) It was a very hot day in Austin. It was also we were rehearsing outside Planned Parenthood 24 hours after Roe v. Wade was overturned. So what a punchline we got from, you know, at the time SCOTUS, but, you know, then abortion became immediately illegal in Texas. So we had been, we had prepared for that to happen later on. We thought that would happen in distribution. We were, we had Planned Parenthood of Greater Texas consult with us on the script and the project, and they gave us approval to shoot at a location in Austin. But we did not anticipate that that was going to happen even before we got to set. So we made it through production, you know, working under the now fantasy of living in a world where we had access to reproductive rights in, in Texas. And so we edited it and actually premiered at So Fucked It's Funny our world premiere in September, the abortion rights fundraiser that abortion fund funds fundraiser that you hosted featuring comedy sketches and 
and shorts around that topic. And we have we have just entered our festival circuit essentially this year. We did we screened at Austin Film Society's Shortcase during the week of South by and Bentonville was actually our festival premiere, which is really cool. cool. So congratulations. We are officially in festival distribution phase festival of the project. Mode. Festival mode. Are, abor- <laughs> are abortions legal in Bentonville? Bentonville right now? Completely banned. Okay. So they also Completely had the banned. same law that went into effect June 24th. It's legal to travel out of state to get an abortion. So yeah, Arkansas is essentially like in the same boat as Texas. We we had gotten, it was actually September, September 2021 was when Texas had a six-week abortion ban. So we were operating under the assumption that abortion was illegal anyway, because it was before Mm -hmm. most people know they're pregnant. And, but it, yeah, I think just like the permanence of it, the, yeah, it's a goddamn mess. It's a goddamn mess. And here we are. Well, tell me. Here we are. And here, I, there's some, there's something that feels right though about it premiering in a state where it's banned Mm -hmm. because, um, Mm -hmm. you know, you, you tell a story that is about friendship and friend Mm -hmm. breakups in a way, but it's not, you know, some, saccharine it's a it's a sharp dark comedy about that and abortion Mm -hmm. is part of you know the narrative but it's not necessarily driving it in a way Mm -hmm. that um, you know it 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 was just it it feels like a refreshingly accessible piece that that underlines why it needs to be legal exactly what you're saying like i've been describing it as normalizing abortion is the heartworm medicine in the dog food and like the dog food is mm. female friendship. So I'm like sneaking it in there in this short. It's not over the top. It's not in any really of the marketing material. Like, no, you don't really know until you get to that scene what's going on. Yeah. But it's a non-issue like in this project and in, in the half hour pilot too. It's like a non-issue. Like no one thinks anything yeah. of it. It's like, yeah, abortions should be legal and accessible to everybody. Yeah. Now this festival in particular has a requirement in order to mm-hmm. submit, I believe. Can you talk about what that is? Yeah. I know, so I actually want to pull up exactly what their requirement is. Because when I was filling out the application, they asked me oh, a bunch of questions about mm-hmm. um, the representation in my film. There's basically an, a requirement for inclusivity in all of the films that are featured at Bentonville. I don't know the exact like demographic. I don't think it's that specific. I think it's just like a certain percentage of, you know, underrepresented communities need to be within the crew and the cast. And it could either also like be a topic of the film or, or it can not be a topic of the film. So I've been applying inclusion writers since my very first short film. Uh, back in 2018, An Uncomfortable Woman. And that was inspired by Frances McDormand's Oscar speech that year because mm-hmm. she was the first person I've ever heard say the word inclusion writer. I actually thought she said inclusion writer. And I was like, cool, I want to be one of those. Mm-hmm. And then I looked it up and learned a lot more about it and decided to apply it to my first short. But I did it before I like really knew about like the paperwork involved in it. So it was, I always joke that it was like, Steve Carell in the office when he declares bankruptcy and he just like shouts, I declare bankruptcy. Like I was like, I'm applying an inclusion writer. 
Uh-huh. So I, this, this last short, the, the, this, the here to make friends, we hired an all woman BIPOC and queer crew and cast. And so we, I think like it was probably one of the one project that I had the most like trans and queer and non-binary crew members like hired at the time. And I think that's a big F you to Texas because of how horrible they treat uh, our our trans community, especially trans kids right now. There's like a lot of legislation, Mm -hmm. uh, horrific legislation right now. I know this is a film no film school podcast, but I'm like, let me tell you about how terrible Texas lawmakers are, but we'll film here just because there's good people here. It, it's relevant because a, yeah. you know, my Sundance instructor, Owen Egerton, who is a sort of darling of the horror film genre, always a feature at fantastic fest. He, yeah, mm-hmm. he, he teaches a Sundance writing class called write your horror feature he his mm-hmm. child is a trans child and he left texas he moved yeah. because yeah. He, it wasn't safe for his it's family not safe. yeah so it's affecting yeah. filmmakers yeah there's real repercussions yeah it's horrible and so yeah having trans friends crew members be able to be like involved in a project and again it's like it's not, it's a non issue for us it's like we, you know, include pronouns on the call sheets and everybody respects each other. And so, yeah, so this was, I would say that I, I, it was interesting because I hadn't shot a short in Austin in a few years. So I actually had to be a little bit more proactive in finding like all women BIPOC and queer crew members this time around. Cause a lot since, since I first filmed my short, like people had left and, or had switched roles in the film industry. So I, dependent on a lot of referrals. And now I have this nice list of like current people in the film scene that I would hire who aren't just like cis het white men. So yeah, if anyone in Austin needs great crew members and that are, you know, reflect a diverse hiring strategy, then hit me up. Sorry, strategy sounds gross, but uh, yeah. So no, I think uh, it is, you have to be strategic and intentional. Yeah. I I think it's very smart. You're, making those hiring decisions. I don't have a lot, I don't have any power in the film industry, but this is one place I do have power. So I, I like being able to pay my friends that are, you know, like doing the work and, and, and also, you know, not often on people's short lists because of the fact that they're not cishet white men. And Bentonville was the first festival that like had some sort of requirement of including that element in your production so it was cool to be to have it be our festival premiere also their initials are bff so that felt kismet Mm. for here to make friends but yeah i I really appreciated that and i know the gina davis institute of gender and media does that a lot i've seen their like them do that work on the advertising side of things i i came from marketing and advertising so like seeing people either use diversity in an exploitative way or like not even thinking about it. Like I've been very aware of that in my day job. So I know that they're doing the work in like many different ways, many different aspects, not just in the, in the film scene. 
That's awesome. I think that's also a perfect segue into an introducing our interview for this podcast. We have the filmmaker Sierra Yurik, who is the director, editor, cinematographer, and subject of the film Junam, a documentary that premiered at Sundance and actually won the BFF Festival. I'm not going to butcher the name again. You know, this her work and her project definitely in, falls under the inclusion writer parameters because she did mostly everything for this. And she's very engaged in this our conversation about how she took on more than she anticipated to create this film. And a little bit about the film, because I know our listeners won't have a chance to necessarily see it before listening, though I recommend watching absolutely once it, out, once it is out, because it has one of the best last scenes I've seen in a doc ever. But Sierra grew up in rural Vermont, a place that had an upbringing far away from her Iran, which is where her mother is from and her grandmother as well. And only knowing Iran through family stories and food and holidays with the prospect of travel to the country, seemingly impossible. She embarks on this quest to make sense of her fractured Iranian identity. And so she navigates these barriers of language and culture and on top of that, complications around geopolitical conflict and displacement. And she turns to her mother, Mitra, and her grandmother, Beisha, to construct this moving narrative and some in sort of disarmingly intimate portrait about these three generations of women and the complex relationship to an Iran of the past and present. And I think the film is unique in that it is showing through these three characters, showing how they evolve, showing how their relationship evolves. And because Sierra is the one holding the camera and setting up the mic, we get incredibly personal. We're seeing a sort of unfiltered version of our mother and our grandmother dynamics, which I think is a universally relatable thing if if you have a relationship with your mother. And across the board, I think her ability to tell a story and create this portrait is just so impressive. So I'm excited for our listeners and Megan, for you to, to see it. Yeah. Yeah. I really appreciated seeing more Middle Eastern filmmakers at this festival as, as well. There was one in my shorts, in my episodic block that had featured like a mi- Middle Eastern dishes that were like, it just was, it was very nice. It felt like being seen on screen. And so having a, a Middle Eastern woman filmmaker win this award as well, like made, felt like really good. Cause I, you don't get to see that very often in this industry. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us and for taking us through your project and the work that you're doing and the B, I'm, I can't even, I, for some reason, Bentonville just doesn't roll off my tongue. So I'm just say BFF. <laughs> BFF just um, sounds better. <laughs> it really does. It really does. It's way more yeah. marketable and it feels on brand. And now our interview with Sierra Yurik. I'm here with Sierra Yurik, the writer, director, editor, cinematographer, and subject of Junam a documentary that premiered here at Sundance. 
2023. Welcome, Sierra. Thank you. Yeah, it's great to be here. (laughs) Can you tell our listeners a little bit about what the film is about? Yeah, I think at at its heart, it's about a portrait of the loss of home with my mother, Mitra, my grandmother, Bechat, and me. My mother and grandmother grew up in Iran, and I grew up in Vermont. And so each of us have a different relationship to Iran and our Iranian identity. And so the film is about that and our relationship with each other and the trials and tribulations and humor and antics and and then the, the past sort of interwoven with all of that. The, the image that I've been seeing as you're pr- promoting the phone on, or the film on Instagram, and, and I think it might be one of the hero images, has, has you in the foreground, your mm. mother and Mitra in the midground, and then your grandmother in the background. And we can see you adjusting a camera or a mic or something. And it's like the perfect encapsulation of the dynamic, the three of you at different layers in different places. And I just love that as like a anchor for the film. Thank you. Yeah, that's definitely like the three of us are very independent, spirited women. And so at different type, different points in the filmmaking process, it was like each of us had our hand vying for the role of director with each other. So <laughs> I love that. Yeah. So when did you decide that you were going to make this film? Was it a specific moment or a gradual realization? Yeah, I was at a residency actually in Canada working on just my own my own work. I'm like a artist outside of this film and I come from like an art school background. And so I was working on this like experimental video at this residency. It has nothing to do with any of this. It mm-hmm. was like much more of like a formal experimental short. And my mom called me in the middle of the night as I was editing this project because my grandmother had started opening up to my mother about all these stories from her childhood that my mom had never heard before. And so mm-hmm. she, you know, it was midnight. She was so excited. She called me before she could forget any of these stories. And I happened to have like my sound equipment with me because I was making this weird short. And we ended up having this like two or three hour conversation about, you know, these like tidbits of stories that my mom was gathering from her mom. And then we had started have, talking about our relationship with each other and her upbringing in Iran and, you know, in mine in the U.S. And so I hung up the phone just sort of like, you know, moved by this phone call that I had with my mom. And and, you know, looking at this funny experimental thing that I was working on at this residency, and it just kind of dawned on me that there was so much I hadn't explored with my own family. Mm-hmm. And I was so interested in these stories of girlhood across place and time. Mm-hmm. And so that's where the film really started was, oh, you know, Iran is this exoticized place for me. I've never been there. I'm not really in touch with that part of my identity. My grandmother's trying to open up for the first time. Like, you know, maybe I should be making something about this and not like this weird, mm-hmm. <laughs> this weird short that I'm working on at this residency. And so that's where it all started. And then, of course, it changed course during the making. But. Did you ever finish the short? I did. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's like two minutes. It's like partial animation, partial like performance art. It's like, it's very different, but yeah, like a, a textured visual aesthetic. Sometimes, sometimes when you're doubling down on one project, another one just like, bubbles up in front of you and you're like, well, I guess we're, we're doing this now. How did you approach your mom and grandma about being subjects of the film? Mm. I think I, you know, because the film started in a more naive place, I was just Mm -hmm. really interested in these stories from my grandmother. It was like a slow build to what it became. And Mm -hmm. so I think if I had approached my mom and said, I want to 
you know, tackle my Iranian identity and, you know, why things have been so difficult and our different interpretations of Iran, maybe she would have been more reticent. Mm -hmm. But at the time, that's not really what I thought I was making. Right, right. And so she was just as interested to hear these stories from her mother as I was to find them out about my grandmother. And so it was just like a, a slow progression of what the film ultimately became, which was something much more nuanced and layered and complicated. Did you know that you would become a character in the film? No, no, absolutely <laughs> not. I like the first treatment that I wrote. I don't even think I was in it. I showed it to uh, some friends for f- for feedback and they said, oh, you know, you, you should probably be in this film. <laughs> so I hadn't really planned for myself to be much a part of it. But then, you know, like the age old cliche is true. You know, you're really like ultimately making something about yourself at the end of the day. So. Right, right. So, yeah. so. In watching the film, there's an element of you learning Farsi throughout the story. And a lot of the, there there are scenes where you are listening to stories that your grandmother is telling you and your mother is translating and, and you are worried that she's filtering it. But so at a certain point, you went back and you actually were starting to get the translation of it. So I, I feel like there's almost like two Sierras in two different points of time mm, processing mm-hmm. and existing in this film. What was the process of like moving away from, I guess, moving into post-production and crafting the story specifically as you were hearing for the first time the, your, your grandmother actually it translated directly? Yeah. What was that like? Yeah. I mean, so I filmed this over the course, majority over the course of one summer with my mother and grandmother, really over the course of like one month. Mm -hmm. I was living with my mom at the time. My grandmother came to stay with my mom. So the three of us were under one house. I was shooting around the clock. It was incredibly exhausting. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so after that month was over, you know, I moved out. I got my own apartment. I was like completely burned out. And so I I took a step back for a little bit and I just sort of like logged the footage and mm-hmm. tried to get things organized. And so it wasn't until like a little bit later that I really went back and started watching some of the footage. And even before getting the transcripts back, I was in a different place personally watching the footage than I was when I was shooting the footage because now I'm not living with my family. Yeah. I have a little bit more like space and time to process. I've slept, you know. <laughs> there is something weird that happens when you are under your parents' roof. And I'm not saying that this is you, but for me, I like regress a little yes. bit. I become uh-huh. more of a child. <laughs> and and I felt like the the kind of that there's like this spark in energy that I think was captured because you were all in the same space, which I loved. I love that part of the film. Absolutely. I mean, I was regressing <laughs> hardcore. My mom was regressing because her mom was there. Yes, you know, we yes. all really like devolved into our daughterly roles. And so coming back to the footage, I could see it in a different way. Mm-hmm. And I had more distance to see myself than I did when I was filming. Because at a certain point, I really just stopped being a filmmaker. And I was like, just fully, you know, petulant child <laughs> in my family's house. And then when we got the we got the translations back, that was this whole other layer where, mm-hmm. you know, all of a sudden I'm realizing that my grandmother's funny and she's cracking jokes while I'm doing things. She's and, hilarious. Yeah, she's got this like dry wit that is just amazing. You know, it's like, oh, wow, this whole other layer of her is unlocked for me. And even in the instances where I kind of got the gist of what she was saying because my mom was translating live in the moment. Mm -hmm. 
to see to see the subtitles up on screen for the footage that I had shot that I was there to record in my native language, which is English, had a completely different meaning. Because mm-hmm. even if you are kind of get the meaning of what someone's saying, when they are using words that you have emotional attachments to because you grew up speaking this language, mm-hmm. it's suddenly you're able to like feel what they're saying in a different way because it's not just an abstract concept of, oh, she's communicating heartbreak, but she's using words like, you know, like, like sorrow, or I, you know, I was so upset that I felt sick, like turns of phrase that made me feel a certain way that I couldn't really access when it was just like, oh, the vague concept that my grandmother is heartbroken right now or yeah, something. Yeah. Yeah. That we've been talking a lot about captioning on the mm. podcast this festival because we've had Allison O'Daniel of the Tuba Thieves on. We also had Ella Glenn Glendinning. I'm I hope I'm saying her name right. And and we were talking about accessibility. And what you're yeah. what you're speaking to specifically is like it's fascinating because like by learning Farsi and also starting to understand in a different way and then also layering on top of all of this and crafting these scenes where there's like multiple dynamics going on. It's, it's unlike anything I've seen, but it, it, I thought it was so well done. And so. Thank you. Yeah. It was so great. I I mean, the crazy thing and subtitles are different than captions, of course, but it's a whole art in and of itself. The way you would edit with subtitles or with captions is completely different. And I think, you know, captions are a different thing, but I was always working with subtitles while I was editing because Mm -hmm. I didn't understand what was being said on screen. So I subtitled all of the raw footage, which was a huge undertaking. But it meant that as I was editing, I was always considering the subtitles and where they were on screen Mm -hmm. and exactly what the translations were because there isn't always an exact translation for the word. And so how do you like encapsulate the meaning if it doesn't exist in your language? I think coming out of the festival, people are going to be looking at, for example, the placement of mm. the subtitles in the picture and how that influences things. So I'm very curious to see how how things are going to shift when it comes to captioning specifically, but also with subtitles as we're entering, you know, another film here is Hansi, or it's a it's an episodic series that's mm. like an Israeli-American, very dark comedy that's very funny and I recommend it. But but I, I think that we're going to be seeing more dynamic subtitles and captioning across the board. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I I always put on captions and I'm not hearing impaired, but I love reading as I'm mm-hmm. watching. Uh, and I think it's like, you know, it's just a completely different uh, like artistic process actually to mm-hmm. use them, even in the ways that you would cut, you know, I don't want to cut across having a subtitle on screen. So I was really trying to time my edits to the speech yeah. because- it's not just an audio track. It's now a visual element. And so I think it's a whole, it's like a whole other layer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So let's talk a little bit about crafting the story. Yeah. What was the process of creating the narrative? You said you took some space after and, and you ingested all the footage you, and you also captioned all of it, which I'm sure was like very critical in understanding and getting to know what material you had. What did the process look like after that? Were you participating in any labs or? or yeah. Yeah. So this film was fully grant funded. So that meant that a lot of the 
funding resources also came with like labs or fellowships. Mm -hmm. So I did participate in a lot of those that were incredibly important. The first one was the Points North pitch of the Points North Institute. They like totally unlocked unlock this film in a way where it was just like me in my bedroom tinkering on it and suddenly it was being taken seriously. Wow. And then I did things like the chicken and egg Accel- accelerator lab, the true false rough cut retreat. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm probably forgetting a few now. I don't want to forget anyone, but there was, you know, there was a lot of lab support that was huge. And then another really big part of the process was working with our supervising editor, Maya Daisy Hawk. She is like a real master with her craft and a very experienced editor. And this is my first feature film. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, everyone tells first time filmmakers, especially if you're working on a personal film, not to edit your own work. And it was really her that pushed me to edit my own work. And I think I I would have loved for her to say, no, actually don't, because I was like intimidated by the process. But she was really encouraging that, you know, this is your personal story. It should be told in your personal voice. Mm -hmm. And there are things that you will be bringing to the story that someone from the outside really can't. And so what I did is that I would, you know, take a stab at cutting together various scenes or like a 20 minute sample and I would show it to her and then we would talk through it and we'd, you know, we would go on a walk. We wouldn't necessarily like sit at the computer and then we would edit together and she would constantly prompt me, you know, what, what do you think happens next? What would the next scene be? And we Mm kind of just went like step by step like that together. And then I'd go off for another several months. I'd like make a huge mess. I'd (laughs) cut a bunch of other scenes together. I'd make some discoveries. And then I'd come back and she would, we'd walk, we'd watch it together again, talk through everything. And then we would, you know, edit some more scenes together. And so it was a very long editing process. It Mm -hmm. definitely. How long? I think I started editing in 2020. And then I had like a few pickup shoots here and there. And so at least a couple of years of editing. And was that your full-time job editing? Pretty much. Because it was such a small production, I was really just fundraising to be able to pay our overhead costs Mm -hmm. to, you know, get equipment and rent space and stuff like that, and then pay for my time. Yeah. And so I spent most of my time over these last five years on this project. That is... To hear that you're paying yourself is also, I think, really important. Yeah. Like, it's so easy to receive uh, grant money or funding and and then feel like you need to spend that all on resources. But, like, your time is worth money as well and you have to survive. So, yeah, pay yourself first because uh, if you don't, you may never get paid. (laughs) And, like, (laughs) like, that's the unfortunate truth about a lot of documentaries is that you might not get a big sale at the end of this. And so if you are like paying yourself along the way, you know, you're getting paid to make your own work. And that's such a gift. That's such a win already. Whether someone decides that they want to, you know, write you a big check and put you on a huge platform or not. So, yeah. Yeah. What was the biggest technical challenge of the filmmaking process? I think Because I was doing it all myself, it was just tough to juggle all the jobs. The film is totally shot on a tripod, completely shot on a tripod, which is why I was able to do it at all. Mm -hmm. Um, Then like running sound at the same time was really difficult. Were you, were you, I I do remember actually in the shot that I, or the still that I referenced at the beginning of this conversation, part of it was getting the mics Mm. on everyone. Yeah. (laughs) Were you, was everyone mic'd up the whole month that you were filming under the same roof or... I would I would vary it. Uh, mm-hmm. So I shot with like an on camera shotgun shotgun mic, and then I had two lobs. And so mm-hmm. I would like sometimes I would put one on my grandmother and my mom, or sometimes I would make myself. 
But there's like a really great way that you can spy when you're doing that. You can just, you know, if you everyone's wearing these lavalier mics, mm-hmm. you can kind of listen in on where people are in various places in the house. And yeah. that allowed me to be many places at once because I could be filming with my mom, but listening to what my grandmother was doing three rooms down. Mm-hmm. And if it sounded like she was doing something interesting, I would switch the mics and then go find my grandmother. And so there was a way that you could kind of use the technology to do be in multiple places at once without actually having to be in multiple places at once. That's such a gr- that's like the hottest tip. Yeah, coming. hot tip. <laughs> Spy on people with the mics. Yes, yes. <laughs> and when you were in that in the trenches of filming, did you did you know yet what type of story you'd be telling or was that more of the discovery process with your post supervisor? Definitely more of the discovery process. I mean, I think I was panicked throughout that I actually didn't have a story yeah. that I was like, oh, I was going to start filming with my grandmother. And now what even is this? And is there a story here at all? And all the while, I'm capturing this amazing footage of getting frustrated with the microphones <laughs> and being with my family. I have no idea they're talking about me on, you know, on the other side of the camera. And so I think that's something that I share with a lot of my peers, this worry that you're putting in all this effort. Oh, maybe this isn't a film at all, actually. But I think in the most messy moments when you feel like this isn't a story at all, you might just be in it (laughs) too much to realize. And then a lot of that footage later, I realized, oh, this this is the most compelling stuff. But at the time, I thought that I was just floundering, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So there's some some value in being in your being in an uncomfortable space, like being that state of discomfort means that there's something there sometimes. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think the the footage that's like the most uncomfortable in the whole film is this final scene that was like really difficult in the moment, this argument with my mom. And I almost deleted that footage because I was so ashamed (gasps) of it. Oh my god. Thinking, oh, you know, I like attacked my mom with this camera. Like I didn't ever want to do that. And then later I watched it with my supervising editor and it was like, oh my God, this is like such compelling footage and so beautiful and hilarious and layered and, you know, all this stuff. But at the time it was torture, you know, I was like, oh, I was so upset. Yeah. So unfortunately, I think like sometimes the most uncomfortable scenes are the ones that later you realize are like so meaningful, but Mm -hmm. it's kind of sucks in the moment when you're doing it. (laughs) So if, if somebody was, you know, saw your film and was inspired to like figure out their own family story and, and like chase that discomfort, how would you recommend they, they start approaching it? Is it like get a tripod, get two loves or three, if you have a bigger family yeah, and, and just start filming? Yeah. I would say come up with some system where you can forget about the tools Mm -hmm. because as soon as you're like too preoccupied, well, I guess no, there are no rules. (laughs) So do whatever you want, but I think it's helpful to have systems in place where you can kind of let go yourself Mm -hmm. and allow things to happen because I would find that as soon as I shut off the camera, all the best moments would start happening because either people aren't performing for the camera or I'm not performing for the camera mm-hmm. and people are letting go. And so I think if you can come up with some ways to forget about the tools as much as possible and allow mm-hmm. the people you're filming with to forget about the tools, it may, that might just be exposure therapy. Having yeah. things around all the time can be helpful. And then just like letting things get messy and knowing that you'll have something at the end, like don't worry about it. 
Did you start to just let the camera run after you were turning it off and you're like, oh, that would have been such a great moment to capture? I definitely let it run a lot, which will sort of haunt you in the edit because you'll have all this footage. But I also left the camera around a lot. So even if I wasn't filming, I would just have the camera on a tripod in around the house. So Mm -hmm. it became like another figure in the space. So it was like, okay, this thing's always there. It may be on, it may not be on. Yeah. So we all could get used to it. And then I think another thing is film things with your family that they associate positivity with. So everyone gets comfortable with the camera and it's not like, oh, when the camera's out, they're exposing me. It can also be, oh, when the camera's out, they're capturing something about me that I really like too. How was it in the post-production process? I I say character, obviously, like these are the family members and real people, but Mm -hmm. I do think in, in, we are crafting a narrative even when we're in a documentary space. Yeah. How did you approach presenting your your mother and your grandmother? Yeah, I, you know, I think they really like presented themselves because mm-hmm. there's they have very different personalities. My grandmother is so big and boisterous mm-hmm. and she's like this natural actress. Yeah. You know, I think if she was born at a different place, different time, she would have definitely taken up acting. And my mom hey, is the it's opposite. Not too late. Yeah. <laughs> my mom is the opposite. She's like quiet and contemplative. She's an artist. She doesn't like to be the center of attention. And so they really directed me a lot of the time where I I thought I was like capturing my grandmother, but actually she was like, you know, turn the camera on. Like, why aren't you filming this? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and my mom was like constantly hiding and ducking out of the way. <laughs> And, and that came through in the footage too, mm-hmm. you know, like this frustration I had with her curation of image yeah. and self. And so I think I had a lot of ideas, but they immediately went out the window when you're like dealing with real people with real personalities. You just kind of are along for the ride with them. Yeah. Yeah. So now that you've screened at the festival, how has it been screening in front of an audience? Uh, obviously, it's the world premiere, but mm-hmm. is this your, your first time seeing it with complete strangers? Yeah, and it's awesome. I think, you know, there's been, there's like the film criticism and then there's the real audience and the real audience is amazing. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, the audience is really intelligent and people bring a lot of their personal stories to the film and seeing people connect who are either Persian or children of immigrants, or maybe they have a lot of like complex mother-daughter relationships with bring like to exactly the table. exactly when I came into the room and I was like, you're just, it's like my Nana and my mom yeah. and me <laughs> in the room becoming our daughters. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, the, like the traditional like hierarchy of editing is like emotions first, story second. Mm-hmm. And I forget what like the third one is supposed to be, but I think. Continuity. Pe- Continuity maybe. Yeah. Something else. Something like that. Edit. Yeah. But people are engaging on an emotional level, and that's really awesome to see because that's why you make something. You want to share it with people. You want them to resonate, spark conversations, build community. And so screening it for people has been the best part of this whole process. And when did you finish editing? That is a good question. And let's just say we finished all the like finishing elements, like last week before we got here. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Like the color and the sound. And it was like a mad dash. To I'm the actually finish. very surprised because <laughs> I, I've been speaking with a lot of people who are like, we finished yesterday. We just finished yesterday. And they look like they need a nap and you feel like very well rested. Oh, wow. And- well, I'm glad I'm giving off that impression. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why I think we finished. We 
submitted like a, a fine cut to Sundance. Mm-hmm. And then we are, achieved picture lock. I think it was like a week or two after finding out that we got in. Oh. So yeah, down to the wire. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Now, is there something that no one has yet commented on about the film that Ooh. you you love? That's a good question. Hmm. Is there something? You know, I think it's just really nice to talk to you about craft because because it's a personal story. A lot of people want to talk to you about your life, of course, and your family and your experience with your identity. But there is so much about just learning about the filmmaking process that Mm -hmm. I went through that it's so nice to talk to you now about like, how did you approach the edit or like, what kind of equipment did you use? Because there was such a learning process that I went through just in terms of being a filmmaker Mm -hmm. and the editing process is like so sacred. (laughs) Truly. So it's like, I'm not sure if there's like one thing I wish people asked, but I am appreciative to be able to like talk about the craft of it as well. I I do think the editing process is one of them in unacknowledged and invisible yeah like things which bums me up because i wish that an editor could go up there with the director more often yeah you are all of the things in one so you get to be up there but but we so a film is there are so many places where a film can go can go wrong yeah uh, and the edit is like the final straw and so many things are saved in the edit so yeah we were really really conscious of, so Maya Daisy Hawk was a supervising editor and she was like edit coach for me the entire time, sort of like helping guide me where, you know, these are the strong things that you have done. And these are the things that like aren't as strong. And so we were really conscious about making sure that, you know, that labor was acknowledged Mm -hmm. because without her, this film would be just like still this like pile of footage on the floor. And the edit does get so neglected, you know, it, like people think about like celebrities or producers right. or directors or, but no one really thinks about the editing, but that's where all of, you know, that's where the art making happens. That's where the story happens. Yeah. Did I ask how you and Maya met? No, we, we met at Sundance had this nonfiction director's residency that they did once. And I don't think they've ever done it again, mm-hmm. but we were both fellows at that residency with our own personal work. And so we met there and just stayed in touch and ended up working on this project together And that, I mean, it's been one of the most fulfilling parts of this project with me collaborating with her on that edit. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's nice to work with friends. You know, I think a lot of times you think, oh, I'm supposed to find like this big fancy person and like convince them that, you know, my thing is good enough for them to want to work on. But usually the people are are, like right there around you who are like believing you and know, know what you want to make and they want to support it. And I was lucky enough that like Maya is like a, an amazing editor and she happened to be up here <laughs> in that moment. Yeah. So, and yeah. with that long, that relationship that you've built over time, there, there was probably trust there. And right. I think that is something important for our listeners to, to know that, that it is the, it is probably, it's the people you come up with that ultimately I think end up being the best partners Exactly. And I I showed a lot of cuts to friends from art school Mm -hmm. that that were my peers that like know me and know my work or know my family. And so I think the people around you are sometimes the best resources or even, you know, like my partner, Brian, he's not in the film industry, but he knows me very well. And he watched countless edits, countless scenes. I mean, shout out to Brian. Shout out to Brian right here. Yeah. (laughs) But, you know, it's like also showing the, the, your work to people who maybe aren't filmmakers or aren't industry, 
Like these are the people you really want to connect with. You're not just trying to connect with filmmakers or critics or whatever. So I, I think that's critical because yeah. we, I mean, if we're living, breathing, socializing within the industry, mm-hmm. it's very easy to get caught up on things that almost, I, I think sometimes like showing, I have a friend who is a, she works in like advocacy and in the financial space and she reads scripts. Mm. She reads my scripts and she gives me the best notes. Yeah. And I'm like, well, she's just reading it from a pure story perspective. And, and so I think it is yeah, critical. And the people close to you know when you're bullshitting, you know, yeah. they know, they know when you're like kind of just saying a thing to be cool or cause it's the thing to do. And so they can really call you out and be like, eh, yeah, that was a little cheesy. You're like, that was a little cliche or, you know, do you really think that? Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. Oh, cool. Well now two more questions for you. The first well, I'll, I'll just tell you the first one and then I'll go up with the second one. Okay. What are you going to take from this? I know you just finished, mm. but what are you going to take from this experience into your next project? Hmm. That's a really good question. Hmm. I think just like a little bit more like trust and confidence because the entire time that I was making this film, I felt behind or like I didn't know what I was doing or that there was like some right way that I was supposed to do some right way that I was supposed to make a feature film. And I just like didn't have the experience to know what that way was. Mm-hmm. And now it's so clear to me that there is no one right way. And all these people that I like put on pedestals before or looked up to are also just making it up as they go along, or they have one specific way that's just specific for them. And actually, you know, no one else knows how to do it. Like they do it and they do it a different way. And so I think on the next project, just like having that knowledge that, that you're not behind and that you're not doing something wrong. And actually, if it's the best method for you to approach a story or to film or to edit, like, that's great. <laughs> so, yeah, I think just like a little bit more knowledge that that your way is the best way for you mm-hmm. and like, don't worry about it. It's refreshing to hear that, like, everyone feels the the thing in the middle of it where you're like, am I... I'm faking it. But oh, everyone, yeah. Yeah, the imposter syndrome was like extreme. Of yeah. Like, oh, I don't, like, why am I here? Like, how did I get to this like residency? Or how did I get this grant? Or, oh no, I got it. Like now they're going <laughs> to find out. Now I have out. to do it. Now they're going to find out that it was all a ruse. You yeah. Know? <laughs> yeah. But everyone feels that way, actually. So, yeah, I think like in the future, I'll not worry about that so much. Good, good. <laughs> yeah. And then the last thing I'll ask you is what advice do you have for an emerging filmmaker, somebody who mm. is, you know, maybe getting their, ca- a, their a camera in their hand for the first time? Yeah. Or what could you tell, would you tell yourself like a couple years ago? Ooh. Hmm. I think if you can show someone something that'll get you a really long way you know, before I even started filming this project, I, I cut together like a three minute trailer and it was just like some found footage online from the Iranian revolution, mm. some photos that my family had. I think I had like shot something of my grandmother one summer and I was like, okay, let me just like play around and see if I can come up with a little teaser of what this idea is. And I didn't, I like halfway knew what the idea was myself. And so if you can make something and it could be like, it could just be totally all found footage or whatever. And 
show it to someone and you can make it like great, <laughs> it'll take you a long way. And so like everyone always says, oh, just do it, just do it. And that was frustrating for me to hear as an emerging filmmaker because right. you're like, well, how? You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but truly, if you just like make something that someone can engage with and look at rather than like listen to you talk about the idea, it'll get you so far. Just make something that people can respond to or can see. Just show someone something. Yeah. And like step at a time, you'll get there. You show know? don't tell very early on in the process. Show don't tell very early on. Yeah. That's and it can advice. it can be sloppy, but yeah, it'll it'll help. Well, Thank you so much, Sierra. If there's yeah. anything else you want to speak to, the, or if you have any, I was going to say if you yeah. have any questions for me, which is not the case. I've been on a lot of roundtables where I'm like, no, everyone talk to each other. Yeah. <laughs> but anything else that you want to speak to about the film or about no film school? Hmm. No, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, I feel like, you know, it's like such a privilege to be here at the Sundance Film Festival. And I'm like so grateful to be here. But there's like, you know, there's so many ways to celebrate work mm -hmm. and that doesn't revolve around like this monstrosity that is the film industry. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess I'm just like excited to see other people's work out there and like excited to watch other movies. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure I have much else to say besides like, like keep making work, people. <laughs> yes. And now where yeah. can people follow your work? The, so the film has a website, junemfilm.com. And I have a personal website, sierraurek.com. And we have an Instagram page as well, which is at Junem Film. Great. Well, thank you so much for being here. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. You can follow us at No Film School across all social medias. Sub like and subscribe to the podcast. And if you have questions, you can send them to editor at nofilmschool.com. Thanks. <laughs>